Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Robbie Robertson, the main songwriter and guitarist for the band, and a tremendously influential figure in the history of rock, died last week at the age of 80. Today, I'm going to play a brand new edit of the interview I did with Robbie back in June of 2020. He started as a fire-breathing teenage guitar slinger. Backing up the Canadian rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins in the Hawks, which is the first incarnation of what would become the band. Robbie and his bandmates went on to back up Bob Dylan in 1966 in what would become one of the most legendary tours in music history. Getting food every night as they played these absolutely triumphant rock shows. In Woodstock, New York, the band jammed with Bob and recorded what became known as the Basement Tapes. They also found their own identity there, with Robbie beginning to write extraordinary Americana-soaked timeless songs. It's become a cliche to say this, but it's true. In the age of psychedelia, the band, Robertson, Garth Hudson, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel and Levon Helm stripped rock back down and reconnected it to its roots. The influence of that was profound. It shifted the careers of the Beatles, a young Elton John, and many others, and you're still hearing it today. The band made a long series of classic essential albums. And capped it off with the last Waltz concert in 1976. Martin Scorsese's film of that concert came out in 1978, and it's one of the greatest music documentaries ever made. It's a musician's favorite, too. When I did a Pearl Jam cover story years ago, Eddie Vedder was literally watching The Last Waltz every night before he went on stage. Robbie went on to a solo career and many collaborations with Martin Scorsese, including what I hear is an amazing score on Killers of the Flower Moon, which is about to come out. Again, in 2020, with the pandemic raging, and with the release of a new documentary about the band, Band of Brothers, Robbie took some time for a revealing conversation about his years with the band, his falling out with the great drummer and singer Levon Helm, his collaborations with Bob Dylan, and a lot more. In tribute to a singular life in music, here's that interview. When I get off of this mountain, you know where I want to go. You can look at the story of the band as a triumph. I think there's a lot of arguments to see it that way. All the great music you made, the, you changed the course of music, you made incredible albums that will live forever. It could also, I guess, be seen as a tragedy in some ways because you 
at least all of you were never able to come together again after the last waltz and there's all the resentment and some tragic deaths and tragic later years for some of the guys. And so between triumph and tragedy, where do you see it? You use the word tragic at one point in the film. It's so sad that in this brotherhood, the three of the guys are no longer with us. But after the last waltz, everybody had a certain intention. They had things that they wanted to discover on their own. And then everybody, we were like, okay, let's all do our thing. And then we're going to come back together. We're going to get in a huddle and we're going to make music as good as we ever have. And that felt great. And it kept us together in our soul in that way. And as time passed, as I say in the film at one point, it just felt like everybody forgot to come back. Everybody just went on. And as Levon says in the film, everybody went on to do other things. And then there was probably no way of actually finding our way back. So the after story of this, that Rick, Richard, Garth, myself, there was no resentment ever. We had the greatest brotherhood. And so we were we were thrilled about that. And when they decided some years later that they wanted to go and play some gigs together, it's in their blood. I completely understood that. And they called me and they said, do you want to join us in this? And I said, no, what I'm interested in is the creative process. And if we were going to make some new music, I'm first in line for wanting to do that. But I don't want to go back out on the road. And then they said, is it okay that we use the name the band? I said, of course it is. I don't want to get in the way of somebody doing their thing and making a living or whatever. So they did. And that's my side of the story. And in the book, Testimony, that this documentary was very much inspired by. Right. That's really my vision and my way of remembering this and looking at it and all of that. So for my end of it, there is absolutely no resentment, no nothing except an appreciation of the amazing time that we had together. Now, all these complaints that Levon made in his book and in interviews, and it's not like the movie doesn't include it, his feeling that somehow that he should have gotten more songwriting credits for, I guess, for the arrangements that they did, because he sometimes would actually say he wrote the songs and sometimes not in different cases. But it, it seems like overall it felt like he felt that for arrangements he would have, should have gotten a certain amount of credit. How much was that ever brought up in the moment versus years later? If Never. Yeah. It was never, ever talked about. Everybody knew how hard I worked on this. And it was way above and beyond the call of duty or what anybody else was doing. But I felt that was my job. That was what I was really, I could bring to this thing. And that's the way it is. Some people write songs and some people don't. Like Ringo Starr didn't write songs. Charlie Watts didn't write songs. And I can guarantee you that those guys never shared publishing with those guys, which I did. So I was very conscious of being generous and inclusive, and I gave Levon writing credits on things that he was just there when I was writing it because I cared so much about the Brotherhood. 
I cared so much about everybody's involvement. And I was really trying to encourage him or the other guys to write as much as possible. But in the very beginning, I was the only one that wrote songs. And in the end, I was the only one that wrote songs. So it, you just say, God, that's, that's what you do. And that's not what you do. So can't fix that. I can't change that. And I understood that Levon was having a tough time later on. And it's why I never said a thing. He was having a, a struggle and he always was really good at finding someone else to blame for what was happening. So he had gone down the whole list of everybody and I was the only one left. And so I wasn't surprised no matter what he said or what he might have thought of from his point of view, but he saw it from one angle and I wrote the book and I saw it from my angle. I don't want to beat this subject to death. I am curious about one specific thing where he, the one thing he said is that he claimed admittedly somewhat vaguely that he worked with you on the night they drove Dixie down. And whereas in your book, you say that he drove you to the library was basically. Yes, he did. <laughs> so, he did. So, and he told me not to mention Abraham Lincoln in the song. Right. That was it. I mean, Levon's voice obviously fits that song so spectacularly, as is the case for other songs sung by the various other members. To what extent were you rewriting for a particular member or casting it? Or how did you decide who was singing what? Because that was one of, obviously one of the great weapons of the band is all those voices. And that's how I saw it, almost in a sense of a theatrical group that, you know, people that you do different stories, you do different movies, or it's like John Ford used the same people in a lot of his movies, and Ingmar Bergman and everything. Mm. And in this one, this guy played the doctor, and that one, this guy played the priest, whatever, and all these things. That's what I did. I wrote these songs specifically for those guys to sing. Levon was my closest brother, and so I was trying so hard I knew his instrument, I knew his abilities, and I was trying to write songs that were perfect for him to sing. And a couple of times, I might have nailed that. More than a couple. But the sort of biblical, magisterial, kind of non-contemporary language that you used in many of these songs, the idiom that you were writing in, where did that come from? I just like great storytelling. And I think a lot of the biblical stories are pretty terrific. And sometimes you just, you go in a certain direction and it gives it a stronger feeling. So whenever I would write a song that kind of pulled from that place, that biblical place, like Daniel and the Sacred Harp, I just, it just felt good. And, and I think that the Bible's, are some of the best stories ever told. There's really quite a bestseller. And and I, I couldn't help at some time just reach in there and pull from that inspiration. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Now, some people who were hanging out with Bob Dylan at that time and literally sometimes I guess he'd be at Big Pink, he'd be up there typing on the typewriter and there would be lyrics and he'd say, let's try them. Some people would see literally be in the room with Bob Dylan writing lyrics and find that intimidating and be like, Bob Dylan's right there. Who am I to write songs? Instead, it seems to have pushed you quite the other way. It somehow helped crack open the door of songwriting for you, the proximity, it feels like. Yeah, it didn't feel intimidating at all. It felt like we were at the clubhouse, and everybody was doing their thing and hanging out, and we are having a great time. And in the meantime, the reason we got the clubhouse was for the band to then make our first album. So that's the reason we were there. Bob just jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak, and it felt so good that he wanted to come and hang too. So it just all was, it was just right at the right time, and everybody felt really good being there, and it just being a ritual. Some people, every day you get up, and some people chop wood, and some people write songs. And yet you did, you were never running the stuff by Bob, it, it sounds like. He, he heard a lot of this stuff as, as like a finished product. Why was that? Because there was something inside of me that I felt very proud of, that Bob and Albert Grossman, our manager, and other people too, that I felt like they think they know us. Mm. They think they know what we do. They don't know us. And the idea to be able to do something with somebody that you're so close to, and at the same time, you can really surprise them and even blow their mind a little bit. That's a good feeling. Yeah. Everyone says who was a musician and was around when you guys first appeared, at least as the band and with music from Big Pink, is what a revelation it was the restraint, the dignity, the song-focused approaches versus Cream, for instance, that it was such a radical shift. How conscious were you of the sort of almost oppositional nature of what you were doing to the trends? How much of that was in your mind, that thing that everyone seemed to react to at the time? It's probably, there might be something subconscious going on in something like this, that you don't want to be a follower. You want to be at the front of this parade. So not once did any of the guys or me say, let's do this because it's different. Never, ever. Really what happened was we found ourselves up in the mountains, in an atmosphere, in this clubhouse. And if you played in the basement, too loud it hurt your ears and also you couldn't hear the singer so we adapted to where we were and what we were doing in that moment 
And when we finished making music from Big Pink, we had no idea what anybody was going to think about this. We knew what we thought about it, but we had no connection to the outside world and how it would be received. So all of that reaction was quite a surprise to us. What we did know was that we had already been together for six or seven years before we made that record. And we had been out there and paid our dues, and we had grown musically to a place that we didn't have to be obvious. That we knew. Yeah, how much was it, I'd always wondered this, how much was it that you'd gotten all your hot licks out on stage for years on end and done all that and thus didn't have anything to prove in the way that rock bands were proving stuff in 1969 with extended solos and a more superficial flashiness? It really was a a maturing, a musical maturity that had set in. And at that point, I had spent a lot of time doing everything on 11, as they say. (laughs) And that passion and that excitement, I appreciated. But I hadn't yet learned about the subtleties. And I hadn't learned about this, a soulfulness in the a soulfulness in what the spaces could be too. And when you get to that place that you have that kind of either confidence or maturity or whatever it is that allows you that something like that. It's a really gratifying place. And that's what Eric Clapton was referring to. Oh my God, you can do that. You can do this in such a delicate way. And it feels that powerful. Whoa. So anyway, but it had nothing to do with anything other than the place that we had grown to. The chordal licks that became a huge part of your sound versus the the sort of spectacular, stabby, single-note electric guitar stuff that you'd especially had been a signature row with Dylan and earlier, did that come in part from like Steve Cropper, Pop Staples? You mean at going to a place of where you don't have to come out of the door screaming, playing everything above the 12th fret. Those people you mentioned that I thought, see, now there's somebody who's been around too, of the way that he played on those Otis Redding records. Yeah. Fantastic. Or Sam and Dave. Fantastic playing. And I loved what the simplicity and the accompaniment that Pop Staples did. And... One of the major people to me that I thought really understood this, somebody who's been around, Curtis Mayfield. Yes. He was another one of what he did with the guitar. I thought, whoa, that guy ain't got nothing to prove. It's (laughs) all right there. So those kind of things, I was drawn to that. I wasn't drawn any longer. These other things had become very obvious to me. And I had been there and done that. Robbie, there was talk over the years you played with the idea of in recent-ish years of, oh, maybe you should go out and do a little bit of touring in some way. And it, it hasn't really come together. And now everyone's bummed because they can't go on the road for the foreseeable future. Do you have any regrets about not given that, that you haven't played? And are you still thinking about that, if uh, assuming the tours can resume at some point? I've never considered that. 
Ah. I don't do that. Oh, I know. I made a movie. I made a movie called The Last Walls, declaring (laughs) myself on that. I did it for many years. I did it under the most incredible circumstances. The Hawks slash the band, we played joints that you couldn't imagine. We were completely lucky that we were alive. And we played the biggest concerts in the world. So I had seen everything that I needed to see from that. And I got to a place after doing this for 16, more than 16 years, I had grown to a place. I've said this before that I felt like I was in a play. I felt like Yul Brenner and the King and I, and I've been doing this for 50 years and I'm saying the same songs the same words every night, and I just go out and I do that. And I was really hungry for a challenge that I didn't know how to do what I was doing. I wanted to learn. I wanted to keep on growing. And it's because I went on the road at such an early age, I've always had this hunger for just absorbing more and growing creatively. So... That's why I was, I worked with Martin Scorsese on all these movies and other people as well. And I decided to write this book, Testimony, and all of these other things. There's so many times in what I've worked on since the band that I woke up in the morning and thought, oh my God, I don't know how to do this. I got to figure this shit out. And that is a feeling that is challenging and it's exciting to me and going and doing something over and over again and then when I would feel like making a record I'd make a record and I could go off in tangents and say I'm going to revisit my American Indian heritage on this and work with some artists nobody's ever heard of that I think that they're extraordinary and we're going to delve into something And I thought, whether right or wrong, I I had earned this. I had paid my dues in so many other ways that I can do something that really makes me feel like I'm growing. I remember I talked to you for, it might have been the Big Rock and Roll Hall of Fame anniversary concert, and I asked you beforehand, uh, you know, any plans to jump on stage, and it just wasn't in your head. You don't have that itch, let alone touring. You you don't usually have that itch even to jump on stage and play necessarily. It's not, again, you got it out of your system, I guess. <laughs> you just did. I did. I completely admire people that just love that. They have a need to be in front of people and to perform. I get all of that, but I just needed to use a different muscle. I needed to use a different part of my brain. And I didn't feel, I don't know, this hunger to get up in front of everybody and show off. I wanted to do different things. I did that and I did it and I did it. And I know a lot of people, their life revolves around I'm going to make some music and then I'm going to go out and do a tour. Then I'm going to make some music and go out and do a tour. And I did that a lot. And at some point, I don't know, it grew old to me. And it's a wonderful way to make a living, going out and people cheering for you and paying you 
to go out there and do that, it's extraordinary. As I say, I have great respect for that. But I don't know. I just have a different hunger. Obviously, someone who sees things quite the opposite way is Dylan. I've read your memories of your time with him in Testimony. I saw the movie, obviously. There's, there's a few things. I mean, Blonde on Blonde, you talk very amusingly about doing the stereo mix of the album. A lot of people don't know that that was you, with the help of a very sleepy engineer, I guess, on that album. But do you have any memory of, first of all, the there was a, a, a sort of failed attempt at recording with the Hawks at the beginning of the process of the album until he then went to Nashville and then just brought you out. Do you remember those sessions that didn't work out? We never thought about it as it being the beginning of that record. Bob hadn't written those songs at all. I think he wrote two songs. One was called Please Crawl Out Your Window, and I forget the name of the other one. And we went in and recorded Crawl Out Your Window. Crawl out your window Come on It won't ruin you And I think we recorded another one too I Wanna Be Your Lover You did a bunch of takes of Yeah, it could be It could be But what we came to understand that was we thought of it like, oh, this guy is used to playing by himself a lot. And when you go into a studio with studio musicians, that's what they do. You go in and they try to figure out in 15 minutes what you're trying to do and try to figure out some little parts in that. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. And so we, when we went in the studio with Bob, for the first time we really understood that he just plays a song and people try to catch up with him in the studio. <laughs> and we were like, no, we're a band. There's five of us. And the five of us need to figure out what to do. And we're not hired studio musicians that just get up in the morning and this is what they go to do. We think of ourselves as the opposite of that. And it wasn't until we made music from Big Pink and the band and Stage Fright and these other records that we were really to get across what our process was. And our process wasn't a studio musician's process or what Bob was looking for in that. That when I first heard, when Bob first played me some of the records he had just made and everything, it sounded like musicians desperately trying to figure out what the hell was going to happen in the song next. And that's okay when you're one person. But there are guys, like the guys in Nashville, Bob would play a song and they would immediately decide who of them would play on the track. And then their job was, oh, I'll play this little melody thing here or there. And you can do that. And they would just sort it out quickly because they're studio musicians. So that's what that was. And so we came to understand something with that. And it didn't really appeal to us. And Bob knew that because I would say to him, we got to figure out what we're going to do here. Just scrambling along without knowing where this starts or ends. 
That's no good because everybody needs to get so we have the language that we're playing together. We're not all just looking at you trying to figure out what you're doing. And when we were playing live, we had figured out the arrangements of the songs and what we're going to do. So that was fine. But this was a different thing. And we were like, oh, this is like somebody who looks at it from a different point of view. And that's fine, but it's not how we want to do it. And it wasn't how he wanted to do it. So that's when he said, I'm going to go down to Nashville and I'd like you to come with me. And I'd been to Nashville before, which I wrote about in testimony. And they weren't very welcoming at all. <laughs> they were a cult, a cult of guys that were just so good at what they did. But this club didn't want any other members. Right. Ronnie they, Hawkins wanted you guys to play on the album, and the Nashville guys freaked out, right? That was that's their, right. Yeah. <laughs> they said, no, that's not what we do. So we're like, oh, okay. And these guys, this was Grady Martin and this guy Hank Garland, who they had played on hundreds of records and were really good at what they did. So we were like, oh, that's the way you do it here. And then we went into another studio there, and Bobby Blue Bland was recording, but it was his band he was with. So that was okay. They're just using the studio. But if you go in and try to interfere with this setup that they have, that throws them off, and they don't like it, and they have to take you into consideration of what you don't know how to do. So I told Bob that, and he said, no, man, come on. Come on down, and they're really nice guys, and blah, blah, blah. Like I said in the book, when we first got down there, I showed up in the studio. They looked at me like they were hoping I was a road manager. In 74, you guys obviously toured again, and uh, my acquaintanceship with that tour is the Before the Flood live album, which I'm a big fan of. I think people heard perhaps the influence of stimulants in the energy of the arrangements. So you love me and you make it up, but you know is that apocryphal or was that part of what was going on as far as the absolutely hypercharged energy of some of those songs on that tour when we played in 1966 bob was going through a stage of amphetamine and and it gave him a lot of go power and we just thought well some people do that some people don't We'd already seen that in the rockabilly world that everybody took Bennies or Dexies or something. And we'd already gone through that period. And at this point, it, it wasn't as interesting to us. By the time Tour 74 came up, Bob was completely in a different place. And he wasn't using, he wasn't using speed at all. And what we were doing and probably what contributed to the energy and the power of that music was that we were revisiting a place where we had been booed around the world. We had been booed to death. Now we were coming back and everybody was acting like, this is great, it's always been great, but we remembered. We remembered what that was. And there was a certain vengeance in the way that we were playing. And I think it had something to do with just playing music with now, with the power, with the confidence in your face. And it was more of us 
our energy, our excitement that we were just living through. And it was not tremendously different than what we did years before. It was an eight-year gap in there. And it wasn't tremendously different in the passion of the music. But now we could do it as hard as we wanted to, and nobody could dare say anything. I imagine that part of you, when you heard punk rock was A, was not particularly interested in it, but B, must have thought, geez, we were doing that in 1966 on stage. There was something of that. And a lot of punk rock, I thought, boy, do we need that? Do we need this slap in the face? This is great. I like the idea that through music, because we had come through a whole period up to then, where the music had been really the voice of the generation. It was a big responsibility, and it was important to the community and the unity of the youth, of the nation, and of the world. And the aftermath of that, when that went away, it was like, now what do you do? Now, punk rock said, we don't give a fuck about unity. We don't care about (laughs) anything. We just want to piss on your shoes. So it was, okay, that's the next passion. That's the next passion play. That's okay. And some of these guys, I thought, I thought Elvis Costello was a really terrific songwriter. The Clash were fantastic. And other people, the Ramones, I thought it was just the very basic of what their musicality was. It took me back to when I first started playing with Ronnie Hawkins, and there was that innocence in it, and I appreciated that. Then some of it just sounded like bad music to me, too, and that was what it was supposed to be as well. So all of that was fine. I didn't have any problem with that. My only problem was Scorsese, he loved punk, and he he would play it so loud that I, it was ear splitting. And he was saying, no, it just, that's how you really get into it and everything. And it was like the first time I had ever told somebody, can you turn down the music a little, please? <laughs> that's a scary moment when you hit that moment. So I was just going to ask you about something you said late last year, which is that when Dylan saw this movie, I guess to sign the release, etc., he gave you a call and you two got to talking in which I guess you talk from time to time, but it's, it haven't really worked on anything together since the 70s. And you said that you guys talked about some kind of collaboration. Did anything come of that? And any update well, on that? Yeah, we were talking about doing what of his... I was just slammed with work. I had this record cinematic that had just come yeah. out, and I, was, and I had just finished the music for The Irishman, and that was just coming out, and I had just done the band's 50th anniversary of the band album of that collection and the box set and the collector's thing and all of this. Once We're Brothers was in the pipeline as well, and I had just a bunch of other things that I was working on, things that I'm working on still right now, and I was slammed. And Bob said, I've got this stuff and I want to figure it out and it'd be great and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I just, right now I'm in the middle of this stuff, but 
And I think that he just felt like it was cooked and he needed to bring it out of the oven or something. So he went in and recorded this spoken word stuff that he was doing. And he read me some of it over the phone. And I thought, oh, this is terrific writing, and it's something that only Bob could do. And I would have loved for us to work together on that. But I just, I couldn't do it at that time. Like the JFK song, that stuff, the, the stuff from it that he's putting out, right? The new album, or is it yeah. something else? Yeah, yeah. No, that was that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm going to, and it's, I was going to check in with him anyway, and just say, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I wasn't available then, but... Let's see if we can cause some trouble down the line. You, you can't just tell uh, Martin Scorsese that uh, you can't finish his score. That this Irishman thing is going to have to wait. And, <laughs> and Bob was terrific. And he told me that he saw the Once Were Brothers documentary. And he said, I'm not really into this, these music documentary things. And I don't watch them. He said, I don't even watch my own. He said, but... I, I had to look at this, and he said, I got caught up watching it, and he said, I just wanted to call you and tell you I think it's fantastic. And he, he talked about certain things in it and everything that really moved him, and so that that was great to hear. I wanted to ask you, in the very little time we had left, there's you talk about the origin of a number of your songs in your book. You talked a little bit about It Makes No Difference, which is one of my favorite songs you've ever written, and I know it's Eddie Vedder's favorite song that you wrote and a few other people's. What do you recall about the actual writing of that song? What stuck in my memory is at that point, I wanted to write a song that Rick could sing the hell out of. And I was trying to really find powerful place for that voice of his to go. And I was also wanting to write something that I wanted to play on. I wanted to write a song and I wanted to do a particular kind of guitar playing and do a thing with Garth on sax. And I had all of this, I had this whole vision in my mind. And like I say in the Once Were Brothers documentary that every time that I would sit down, that was a lot of the times, that was all I had to go on. I thought, I want to write a song for Richard to sing that will break your heart. Or I want to write a song for Rick. I'm telling you, I'm overdue for writing something for Rick. And so anyway, it was, again, my thing of being in this group, in this club, and my job was to write material for these actors to play. Absolutely. The documentary is Once We're Brothers. Again, I would also check out his book, Testimony, which is one of the great rock and roll memoirs. And Robbie, thanks so much for making the time to do this. As you could tell, I could have, I could have grilled you all day. It was really great fun talking with you, Brian. All the best to you. Same to you. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Should we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.